A young man was uh, studying at a Christian college and he was diligently witnessing to an unbelieving friend. And as he was witnessing, he was feeling it. He was feeling very, uh, really discouraged and frustrated because he felt that it was totally and utterly incumbent upon him to argue intelligently enough to bring this person to faith in Jesus Christ. And with each passing day, this unbeliever remained unconvinced. And this young man felt that he was letting God down. And then, lying in his bed one night, very much awake, he saw a vision of himself working on a very large church building, attaching a small shingle to an otherwise incomplete roof. And he understood a clear message. He was simply a small player in God's great big world. And he was in no way responsible for the final outcome of another person's salvation. From that day forward, the pressure was off. His faith was strengthened and witnessing from here on out has been a pleasure for this man. She was halfway through her graduate studies. She was living alone and broke. No money, in fact, for the next semester's tuition. Sitting in her Volkswagen bug, I like that part, asking God for help, she heard a voice. She believes the voice of the Lord. As clear as day, that voice said, walk in the way you are walking. She said it was very profound and encouraging. I immediately felt God's peace. Five minutes later, she walked into class and a professor pulled her aside. He informed her that she had just been awarded a $500 scholarship for the next semester. The thing is, she never applied for this scholarship. She never knew about this scholarship. She never told anyone about her need. But the professor had noticed that she had turned in a payment late in the past and he felt it incumbent upon him to award her this scholarship, never having applied for it. The $500 covered tuition, books, and gas and even bought lunch that day. He never remembers dreams. And I mean never. Never remembers his dreams. Sounds like me, actually. I never remember my dreams. But on three separate occasions, this young man had a dream of a room, a place where he had never, ever previously been. He could remember vivid details of these rooms, the decor, the layout, everything. And in each of the three dreams, he found himself intensely, as he walked into this room, intensely second guessing his choice to pursue a career in full-time Christian ministry. He would walk into the room and the dream and he would see the room and, and, and recognize the details and, and immediately he would be overwhelmed with his sense that he should not be going into Christian ministry. But just as fast as he would second-guess that decision, the Lord would then send a calming presence upon him. A presence, a reassuring message from the Lord. At the end of every dream, it ended with this. A message, an impression left upon him that told him that he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. Would you believe that after each dream, this man, sometimes weeks, sometimes months later, would walk into the same room he dreamed about for the first time? As he walked in, he remembered what the Lord had impressed upon His heart. Three dreams, three different rooms, never having been in them before. And each time He walked into this room in real life, He remembered that He was doing exactly what God wanted Him to do. 
The title of my message this morning is Dreams and Visions. Do they have merit today? Dreams and visions. Do they have merit today? Now, what do you make of these dreams? What do you make of these intense promptings of the Lord? What do you make of the vision of personal revelations of, of God to man in our day and age? Do, do, you, do you believe these stories that I'm sharing with you? Do you, do you disbelieve them? Does your theology incline you to believe them or to disbelieve them? Would it matter if I told you that every single one of those stories came from people from a little church in San Juan Capistrano called Coast Bible Church? Would that matter? Would that change your view on the veracity of those visions, of those dreams, of those hearing the voice of God walk in the way you are going? We're in a peculiar series of messages here. Uh, we've been talking about dreams and visions. And you'll remember that the first uh, set of messages we did these last couple Sundays, we did Christmas dreams and Christmas visions part one and two. And in, these, uh, in, in this first set of messages, these last couple Sundays, we examined closely the, the visions and the dreams surrounding the birth of Christ. We, we examined the vision of Zacharias, the vision of Mary, the dreams of Joseph, the dreams, uh, the dream of the wise men and the dream, uh, excuse me, the vision of the shepherds. And we, we looked at these dreams and we looked at these visions. And what we did was we compiled characteristics and, and, and see, seeming purposes of these dreams and visions. What did they accomplish? What were their parameters? What did they accomplish in the one who received it? And we set out to put some parameters around these dreams and visions. Well, we're actually going to set aside parameters just for a little bit today. I'm going to come back to it one last time next week. We're going to spend one more message on this topic next week. But today I want to set aside parameters so much and talk specifically about, does it have merit at all? Does, Does any of this have merit at all today in our day and age? Dreams and visions, do they have merit today? You know, and in preparation for today's message, um, I, I asked you last week to share your stories with me. And I received actually about ten stories of dreams and visions uh, of, of those hearing the voice of God from our church. Ten stories. Um, and I, for one, was just incredibly encouraged by these stories that I read But I will say this, when we ask the question, what merit do we give dreams and visions of our day and age, whether our own's or another's, experiences alone cannot, I repeat, experiences alone cannot guide our final answer to that question. Were we to base uh, things strictly on experience, we could be led astray. And so the first thing we need to do when we ask the question, what merit do dreams and visions have today, is we need to look at a revelation of God that is tried and true. The Word of God. We should begin discussing the merits of modern divine revelations by first exploring the Bible, what the Scriptures have to say about divine revelation. And so I want to begin today in Acts chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Acts Chapter 2, we're going to look at the day of Pentecost here briefly. And we're also going to be turning to Joel in just a moment. So get ready. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 15. We're not going to spend our entire time uh, in the Scriptures today. We're also going to uh, talk about some other uh, examples of dreams and visions. But I want to lay a foundation. If we were to lay it with experiences alone, we can be led astray. But here is our foundation. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 15. This is Peter speaking. And this is what Peter says after, notice this, after having seen the Holy Spirit descend and tongues of fire came upon the Christians in Jerusalem. They all began speaking in tongues and it was the giving of the Holy Spirit upon the first century church. And people were 
people who were not Christians who were seeing this happening and they were saying, what's going on over there? What are they, why are they speaking in tongues that, that are of our language back home? How could they do this? They're from, they're from Galilee. How could they know that language? And they're asking questions and Peter stands up and he says this. He says, Peter said, look, these people, they're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this, this, this experience of the Spirit coming upon them, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and the skies and the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right. Acts 2, day of Pentecost. The unbelievers are looking at these Christians who are now speaking in tongues and, and displaying evidence of the Holy Spirit. And, and they're asking, what, are they drunk? Peter says, no, they're not drunk. It's 9 a.m. They're not drunk. What you are witnessing, Peter said, what you are seeing is none other than that which Joel prophesied would happen in the last days. And indeed, what happened at the day of Pentecost did very much correspond to Joel's prophecy. You see, Joel prophesied some 800, some say 600, I would argue 800 years prior to this event. And when Joel prophesied, he said, look, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in great measure in the last days. And that's what happens here on the day of Pentecost. Many unbelieving Jews from surrounding nations began to hear the wonderful works of God in their own language. The gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language. People began to declare the truth of God, those filled with the Spirit. And then, what about the wonders in the skies? Well, well, surely Joel's prophecy corresponds to that as well. You see, as Jesus died on the cross, what happened on the earth? Darkness covered the land during the daylight hours. Surely, we, we can see as we look at Acts 2 and we read Peter's words and, and he compares it with Joel, we see so many parallels. And we're encouraged by that. But wait a minute. There, there's much more to, to Joel's prophecy behind us, isn't there? There's so much more. In fact, while so much of Joel's prophecy appeared to correspond with the day of Pentecost, other aspects of the prophecy seemed, well, unfulfilled. Take a look. Look at Acts 2. It says, he says, on my... Uh, men's servants and the maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Well, were they prophesying in Acts 2 or were they speaking in tongues? Maybe, maybe we could correlate those two. Maybe. Maybe a case could be made for that. But it says earlier in verse 17 that, that they'll see visions and, and dream dreams. Were, were there visions and were there dreams at that moment at Pentecost? Were, were those things taking place? Not, not in Entirely, we wouldn't totally characterize it in those terms. What about the fire? What about the blood? What about the smoke? Well, maybe, maybe the tongues of fire, but the blood and the smoke? Well, well, where is that in Acts 2? Where is that in the first century? I'm confused. Did, did these things, did Joel's prophecy occur fully and finally in and around the time of Pentecost? Or didn't it? Surely Peter, uh, surely he rightly anticipated that a complete and final fulfillment of Joel's prophecy was coming. Too many signs were happening all at once. The evidence appeared overwhelming. But if Peter believed that Joel's prophecy was coming in full, then surely 
if he would have continued to read in Joel's prophecy, he would have accepted these things as well as components of it. And what I'm saying is this. Peter stopped short of Joel's prophecy in Joel 2 and 3. Peter read, Peter declared part of it. But surely I'm suggesting if Peter thought that the day of Pentecost fulfilled Joel's prophecy, then surely the remainder of Joel's prophecy would also apply, would it not? Well, this is what Joel had to say immediately after Peter's quotation. Joel said this. He said, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant who the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them, the nations, there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. This immediately follows quotation that Peter gave of Joel's prophecy and is fully in context with it. If Peter believed that the prophecy of Joel was being completed in full right before his eyes on the day of Pentecost, then surely Peter also anticipated that in his lifetime he would see Israel and Jerusalem Delivered. Verse 32. The captives and the suffering of Israel reversed. Chapter 3, verse 1. The judgment of the nations by the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 2. Sheep and the goats judgment that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 25. If Peter believed that the prophecy of Joel was being completely and utterly fulfilled right before his eyes, then surely he would have accepted this as well in his lifetime. But wait. Peter died still waiting for these things to occur. They did not happen. So which is it? Did the experience of Peter and the Christians at Pentecost, did it fulfill Joel's prophecy? Or didn't it? I would argue that what Peter saw at Pentecost on the day the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, I would argue that what he saw that day was absolutely in keeping with the prophecy of Joel. But one thing is clear. It was not the complete and final fulfillment of Joel's words. In truth, you and I live today still waiting for these promises to take place. And like so often in Scripture, what we have here in Acts 2, turn back to Acts 2 if you would, uh, Kevin. What we have here in Acts 2 is a typological fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. You say, what's a typological fulfillment? It's a type. It's a kind. It's a shadow of the complete and final fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that will come in the last days. You might be asking, well, why are you spending so much time on this? Why does this even matter? Because this, if Christians, this matters because of this. If Christians, if their experience on the day of Pentecost was only a type, was only a shadow, was only a kind of the prophecy of Joel, and it was not finally fulfilled, then you and I can expect some things in the last days. What can we count on? Among other things, we can count on that. We can count on that in the last days, says the Lord, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Now, some wish, some wish to, to rip out verses 17 and 18 behind me from the context of Joel's prophecy and say, well, 
that component of Joel's prophecy was totally and utterly fulfilled at Pentecost. And the rest of Joel's prophecy is yet future. I would argue that if we are going to be faithful to the context of Joel's prophecy, that that kind of a position is absolutely untenable. You cannot defend it. Some wish to say, well, come on now, we've got to pull out 17 and 18, we've got to pull out divine revelation, and we've got to move prophecy and visions and dreams, and we've got to put it behind us. We've got to put it to the Old Testament times. We've got to put it strictly to the first century, strictly to, to Pentecost and the time of Jesus and the first century church, and leave it there, and we'll leave the rest of Joel's prophecy for the future. I say, in keeping with the context of Joel, the suggestion is plain and clear that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy remains future. What else can explain the mention of multitudes of people prophesying? Multitudes of people having visions. Multitudes of people having dreams. Witnessing fire, blood, smoke on the earth. Seeing Israel's deliverance. Judgment of the nations. These things must be future. I declare that this was not totally fulfilled at Pentecost. I do not believe that. And I find it utterly unconvincing for those who try to say it was. I say plainly, Acts 2, 17 and 18 was not utterly fulfilled at Pentecost. It remains a valid prophecy of the eschatological future. Now, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us in the study of the merits of modern day dreams and visions? At the very least, it means this. We can no longer dismiss out of hand a person who claims to have had a divine dream or vision from the Lord. It means at the very least, we should take a fresh look at the merits of those who claim to have had such experiences. It means that not only should we expect dreams and visions to occur in the future and in our day and age, but that we should ex expect them to occur with increasing frequency as we approach the last days. That's what Joel's prophecy says will happen. You say, whoa, hold on. Really? Dreams and visions? You're telling me we should expect them? You're telling me they're going to grow in, with increasing frequency as we near the last days? Wait a minute now. Wait a minute. We're, we're not a charismatic church, are we? No, we're not. We are not a charismatic church. We're a Bible church. And it's interesting because the Bible says in Acts 2, 17 and 18 that in the last days, dreams and visions are going to become more frequent. We're a Bible church. And unless you can convince me that that was fulfilled at Pentecost, which I don't think is a tenable position, then this remains a component of the future of this earth. Now, I know for many of you, um, this, this is really, really new and uncharted territory. For many of you, this is new and uncharted territory. And you know, it, it is for me too. Um, perhaps you, like me, have grown up in what is called a cessationist Christian church. And by the doctrine of cessationism, I mean that you grew up in a church that taught that the sign gifts and divine revelation and miracles and, and these miraculous signs and God speaking to people Dreams and visions, well, well, those things were for the past. They've ceased. Cessationism. You grew up perhaps in a church that taught this, that, that those things were for the first century and Old Testament times, and they finished and they were done with there, and there's nothing left. There's not, not going to be any more divine revelation. There's not going to be any more God speaking to people. No more visions, no more truth. Nothing. Ceased. And I've given you actually some scriptures that, that uh, they point to to support this position. 
go ahead now. We've got uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 and 12. I list, I've listed them in order of uh, significance. And I am not going to go into these passages today. I, truthfully, I do not have time. Um, we can at another date, and I'll be happy to preach a message on this and why I believe that each one of these passages is insufficient to declare a doctrine of cessationism. Particularly the first one, the first Corinthians 13, is very often used to advocate that prophecy and tongues and knowledge, these things, they've ceased. Um, it's just a little primer as you're going to study that. Uh, I take that which is perfect in first Corinthians 13 as the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not, I'm just saying this to those few of you who want to go back and read this, it is not the closing of the canon. It is not the closing of the New Testament, what is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, that, that which is perfect. It is the coming of Jesus Christ. He is that which is perfect. And these cessationist teachings behind me, I put them up there in full disclosure. I'll say, I'll, 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 if you want to go to these passages or if you have another one that you'd like to talk about, let's look at it. We're not going to look at it this morning. But I would just say, uh, just clearly and plainly, that I have studied these passages meticulously. And I do not find in them, I do not find in them, a doctrine of cessationism. It's just not there. But I put these on the screen for you to take home, for you to study, and for you to go back and say, okay, do these things, do they override? Do they usurp? Do they, do they overwhelm Acts 2, 17 and 18? Or don't they? I say that the doctrine of cessationism um, has had its day. Uh, and I think it's, uh, I think it's moving. Uh, I think the church at large is moving away from this, uh, this historic doctrine. But let's be very clear. Let's be very, very clear here. Just because, I want to say this so plainly. Don't misunderstand this. Just because... We accept the idea that Acts 2, 17 and 18 remains future and that the dreams and visions will be coming ahead of us. That does not mean we are aligned with Pentecostal and charismatic theologies. That does not mean that. I do not find myself in full agreement with Pentecostal and charismatic theologies. Neither do I find myself in complete agreement with cessationist theologies. In fact, I find faults and, and problems in each of those perspectives, uh, some, both of which have gross exaggerations, both of which often have, uh, on the side of the charismatics, they often have gratuitous parading of divine revelation that is not legitimate and is not meritorious. But I'm asking the question today, is there not a middle, middle ground? Can we not strike a balance between putting too heavy of an emphasis on dreams and visions which can plague the charismatic churches and putting too little to no emphasis at all on dreams and visions and divine revelation which can plague cessationist churches? Can we not argue and advocate for a biblical and middle ground in this matter, one that does not ever diminish this, the Scriptures, but that allows for the Lord to speak directly to His creation, even in this day and age, when He so chooses. Why shouldn't we expect God to be able to speak when He so chooses? How limiting for us to assume that these things have utterly ceased. Many of you know Mike Wade. He is a missionary with Campus Crusade for Christ, like Barry. Barry, how far do you live from Mike? 20 minutes. All right, good. Say hi to him for me, all right? Mike Wade, great missionary from our church. Campus Crusade missionary. Jesus Film Project, doing great work in film in particular. Mike mailed out his monthly newsletter on December the 16th. His monthly missionary newsletter on December the 16th. And as he mailed it out, as he emailed it out, he had no idea that I had just begun a series of messages on dreams and visions. No idea. Wouldn't you know it? Mike's newsletter, Mike Wade, we all know Mike Wade. He, he, he certainly, uh, we would never categorize him, you know, in the charismatic Pentecostal side of things. But Mike Wade put in his newsletter a short film from Campus Crusade for Christ 
shot with best-selling author Joel Rosenberg. And I put a picture of Joel in the back there. You may know this man. Uh, his books, uh, like The Last Jihad, in, uh, Epicenter Inside the Revolution, have hit number one on Amazon and have been spending weeks and months on the New York Times bestseller list, both fiction and nonfiction books. Uh, but he's more than an author. He has advised both American and Israeli political figures. He's worked closely with the likes, likes of Benjamin Netanyahu and Steve Forbes. He's spoken to members of Congress. He's spoken to the White House. He's spoken to the CIA. He's spoken to the Pentagon. He knows biblical eschatology. It's one of his fortes. And Campus Crusade recently interviewed him on the topic of dreams and visions related to the Jesus Film Project. This is what Mr. Rosenberg had to say. The gospel needs to be preached, even if people are not yet ready to hear. And the Jesus film is a critical part of getting those planted in people's hearts. But sometimes, because of the religious uh, system in that region, just hearing the gospel alone sometimes is just the beginning. In Joel chapter 2, the Lord tells us that in the last days, he's going to pour out his Holy Spirit. And the elderly and the young are going to see dreams and visions, women and men, uh, young and old. What was a few anecdotal examples has become an avalanche, a Niagara Falls of examples. I mean, Jesus appears to be appearing to millions of people in the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia, and millions are coming to faith in him. Uh, we have never seen harvest of, of hearts and souls in that region in the last 14 or 15 centuries. I mean, this is just extraordinary what's happening. The Jesus film was being broadcast on satellite television in Farsi, which is the local language in Iran. And the report came back that an elderly woman in her apartment was flipping through the channels and she suddenly sees this film about the life of Jesus. Well, she knows from her religious background that Jesus is important, though she doesn't believe he's the Son of God. Well, she starts watching, and she's fascinated. I mean, she's suddenly touched by the compassion of Jesus for the elderly, for sick people, for little children, uh, for the poor. She's moved by his miracles, by his power, uh, by his teaching, the authority of his teaching. Uh, and when he dies on the cross, she's weeping. When he rises again, she's cheering. She just is transfixed by this message. At the end of the film, the narrator says, from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. She's never heard this message before. She never heard Revelation 3.20 before. She thinks, you're supposed to get up and open the door? Well, okay. So she gets up. And she hobbles over to her front door and she opens it. At that moment, she's hit in the face with a bolt of light. She shields her eyes and she says, who is it? And Jesus says, it is I. So she says, come in, my Lord. And for the next few minutes, this Iranian woman, no connection to the gospel of Jesus Christ ever, is standing with Jesus. She's seeing a vision of Jesus in her apartment. A few moments later, that vision ends and she looks back at the screen. And there's contact information, a phone number that routes from one city to another country to another continent. And it comes into a communication center where an Iranian believer in Jesus answers the call. And she says, excuse me, I just saw Jesus. Well, the Iranian believer says, I know, isn't it a wonderful film? She says, no, no, you don't understand. I just saw Jesus. Rosenberg's words. What was a few anecdotal examples has become an avalanche, a Niagara Falls of examples. Jesus appears to be appearing to millions of people in the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia, and millions are coming to faith in him. We have never seen a harvest of hearts and souls in that region in the last 14 or 15 centuries. And he means combined. It is just extraordinary what is happening. What makes a statement like this that much more uh, 
meritorious, if you will, is that it comes from a man who attends a non-charismatic, cessationist, evangelical church in the Washington, D.C. area. Let me say that again. He attends a non-charismatic, cessationist, evangelical Christian church near Washington, D.C. And this is what he is declaring to you and me. The evidence is overwhelming. And Mr. Rosenberg's numbers, uh, staggering as they are, are not off base. James Rutz of WorldChristianDatabase.org from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, he did a study on the numbers of Christians worldwide right now, and he's noticing this. In the 1960s, in 1960, for every one non-Western Christian, there were two Christians in the West, so like North America and, and uh, Western Europe. Now, fast forward to 2010, this next year. This is what's going to be the case for every one Western Christian. Guess how many? Guess how many non-Western Christians there are? Guess how many? Seven non-Western Christians. In 50 years, it is just absolutely flipped entirely. And what God is doing in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia around the world is absolutely astounding. He says, in, in, just, in just the last century, in just the, 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 excuse me, in the last 14 or 15 centuries combined, we have not seen a harvest of souls like we're seeing right now in those parts of the world. Did you know that in the 90 minutes of this service today, we're spending 90 minutes together approximately, in the 90 minutes that we will be gathered here today, over 600 people will have come to faith in Christ in China alone. 600 new believers in China alone. Did you know that missionaries are now, Christian missionaries, are now being sent out more from non-Western countries than Western countries? You and I are sending out less missionaries than Latin America, than the Middle East, than Africa, than Asia. Come on, guys, pick it up. Pick it up. J.P. Moreland, one of my professors at Biola University, a man, there's few men I respect more than J.P. Moreland. Once again, this man comes from a cessationist background, evangelical background, no reason to believe what he does other than the overwhelming evidence, and this is what he says. He says, I had lunch with a world-renowned American New Testament scholar, he had just taught a course for around 20 missionaries. One man, one of the missionaries, told him that in several years, every one of the many conversions to Christ he had witnessed came by way of the Lord speaking or appearing to the person in a dream or a vision. Every one. By dream and vision. You see, but Neil... I, Okay, if, but if these things are happening all over the world, if, these, if, the, if this is really true, if what, if what Joel Rosenberg, this cessationist guy, not anymore, and J.P. Moreland, this cessationist guy, well, not anymore, if what they're saying is true, then why don't I see it here? Why don't I see it where I live? You do. You do. You're just not looking for it. Remember the young college student that I spoke of at the start of this message? Remember his intense desire to save his unbelieving friend and of the vision he had of, from the Lord that, that he was just a small player nailing a small shingle to an otherwise incomplete roof. And remember the peace that that gave him and the strength it gave his faith, remembering that, you know what, it's God, it's not me, it's the Lord who's doing that. This vision, that's my friend uh, Paul Stevens over there. That's Paul's vision that he's had. You remember the one, the, the woman who was sitting, uh, she was sitting in her bug and she was, she had no more money for the tuition for next semester. And the Lord suddenly declared to her, said to her, she heard the voice of God and it said, walk in the way you are going. And minutes later, she received a $500 scholarship that she had never applied for. That was my friend Colleen Bacon. And remember the young man 
The young man who had three dreams in three different rooms. He had never been in before. He had never seen these rooms before. And remember the doubt that he felt when he walked in those rooms. And remember what happened at the end of the dream. When the dream ended, he realized at the end of this, at the end of this dream that, wait a minute, I am where I'm supposed to be. The Lord is confirming I should be pursuing Christian ministry. Remember how weeks later he would walk into these rooms that he had never been in before, that were only in his dreams. One was a bathroom in Dana Point. Another was a coffee shop in Denver. And this one, well, this, this is crazy. The last dream, or one of, one of these dreams, he walked into a small house in Iraq that he and his soldiers were canvassing for terrorists. And as he entered that room, he remembered everything about it and remembered the message of the Lord. Well, those are the dreams of my friend Corey Townsend, who's really kicking himself for not being here today. He's up in Denver with his family. Corey Townsend, our ministry intern at Coast Bible Church. Each time he entered these rooms, his jaw dropped. And he remembered the dreams and how the Lord reminded him he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. It is happening. It is happening. It's happening all around. What was a few anecdotal examples is becoming an avalanche, a Niagara Falls of examples. And isn't that in keeping with Acts 2, 17 and 18? I would argue it is. To those of us with a history of cessationist or extremely skeptical thinking, I ask you, are you prepared? Are you prepared to discount the testimony? Of not one, not two, but three of those you know and trust at Coast Bible Church. Of course you're not. Of course you're not prepared to to just throw it away and to say, oh, well, that was just a figment of their imagination. Of course you're not prepared to do that. You know you're not prepared to do that. These are people we know and trust whose credibility we are confident of in our community. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, I, I believe their stories, Neil. I, I'll believe their stories, but, but there's a lot of sensational stories out there. A lot of claims that people having revelations from God, seeing God in a tortilla for crying out loud. What, does the Bible offer any advice for weeding through the, the wheat from the chaff? Of course it does. Of course the Bible does. That's what we've been talking about. The characteristics and the purposes of divine dreams. Go over the last couple messages. You'll see parameters. You'll see guidelines within which we can discuss the merits of these dreams and visions. And in my final message, I'd like to do one more look at some final parameters, some final guidelines as we evaluate the merit of these things. But I'd like to close with one final dream, if, if, if you'd permit me to. Um, this is uh, one that just, just incredibly touched my heart. This woman, five years ago, uh, was nearing the end of an adoption process. She was seeking to adopt, and her best friend was going to go with her to pick up this adopted child. And this woman had a dream one night. She had a very vivid and a very clear dream that she believes was from the Lord. And this dream, in this dream, her, her adoption, the paperwork, it just it wasn't right. It wasn't ready. The paperwork was not ready to go. And they could not adopt the baby. But her best friend, who she was taking with her to adopt this baby, her best friend graciously offered to adopt the baby for her and give her the baby once the baby had been adopted. When the baby was born, in her dream, she went to pick up the baby from her friend who was holding him. And when she reached out for the baby in her dream, her friend pulled the baby back and said she was going to keep him. The woman said, no, you, you can't keep him. He, he's mine. You need to give him to me. He's my baby. And she repeated again and again, you, you, you need to give him to me. He's mine. You agreed to give the baby to me. But her best friend pulled the baby back and said, no, I've, I've decided to keep this baby. She said, 
there's another baby for you. This baby I'm going to keep, but there's another baby for you. A baby out there that you need to go and you need to get this other baby. The woman protested time and time again. You, no, you need to give me the baby. And the lady said, no, I'm, I'm going to keep this baby. You go get the other baby. The dream ended. And she just, what? this makes no sense. This dream it has no meaning, right? No meaning. Well, she calls her friend anyway. She calls her best friend on the phone and says, you're not going to believe what I dreamed. You and I, we went to get the baby and and you said that you'd adopt him for me and and that you'd give him to me and then you kept the baby from me. And her best friend just laughed out loud. She said, what? I would never do that to you. I would never keep your baby. Of course I would give you the baby. Don't worry about that. And the conversation ended and time passed. A few weeks later, The woman's best friend died. She died suddenly, unexpectedly. And the woman went to her funeral out of state. And while she was attending the funeral of her best friend, the adoption agency called. And the agency said, your son's been born. But there's a problem. He has a terrible disease. Severe hydrocephalus. He never developed a brain. He's not going to live very long. I'm sorry. And indeed, the baby died. And the grief was overwhelming. But then this woman remembered the dream that she had. She remembered her best friend keeping the baby saying, no, I'm going to keep this baby for now. And immediately, the pieces of the puzzle started coming together. And the woman turned to her best friend's daughters and said, I've had this dream. I've got to tell you about it. Listen to this. The baby, the fact that she's keeping the baby, maybe that means that she's and the baby are with the Lord. And the pieces started coming together. She she said she was going to keep the baby in my dream. And maybe that's what this dream means, that my friend has died, but the baby has died. And now she is with the baby. She's kept the baby and they are with the Lord. And in a sense, my friend now has taken and held that baby and kept him safe. And it gave her great comfort to know that they were together, the baby and her best friend. Weeks passed. She got another call from an adoption agency asking if they would consider adopting a new baby boy who had just been born premature. He was going to be released from the hospital soon. They had no knowledge of this baby, none whatsoever. Her first response was, we're not ready. We, We just dealt with this horrible situation and the grief and the pain of losing our baby and our best friend. We're not ready. I'm sorry. But the social workers mentioned the date of birth of the baby. The baby was born seven weeks premature. It was the same birthday as the other child who had died of hydrocephalus. Same birthday. In that moment, while she was on the phone with the adoption agency, this woman recognized that God had told her in a dream, that there was a baby out there for her, but that her best friend was going to keep and hold the first baby so that she could go out and get the baby that was for her. They named the baby Isaiah. The woman who had this divine dream was Jenny Thompson. Call me crazy, Jenny. Call me crazy. But I believe you. I believe you had a divine dream. I believe the Lord spoke to you. And in the dream, it didn't make any sense at first. None whatsoever. I think of Genesis chapter 40. Dreams and visions of the butler and the baker of Pharaoh. They had no idea what the dream meant. None. I think of Acts 10. Peter and the the, the vision of the, the food coming down 
take and eat. And Peter's like, no way. That doesn't make any sense. But in time, over a period of time, the Lord revealed the purpose of that dream and gave a confirming value and merit to that decision in their life to go out and to adopt this baby, Isaiah Thompson. Do dreams and visions have merit today? Of course they do. Of course they do. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Of course they do. What's happening in the Middle East? Of course they do. What's happening around the world? Of course they do. What's happening at Coast Bible Church? A non-charismatic, evangelical, cessationist-leaning, maybe, church? Do dreams and visions have merit? Of course they do. Next week, we will give final parameters for assessing the value of these revelations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we're not surprised that You speak to us, Lord. You speak to us so very clearly in Your Word. And as we read it, we grow in our faith and in our knowledge of You and we are encouraged and edified. And Lord, You've spoken to us in a great and final and magnificent way in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He has come and He has declared everything, everything that we need to know for this life. But Lord, we also recognize that at times you have a direct message, a personal message, a message that usually is is just for us, just to encourage our faith, just to remind us of your love, just to remind us of your grace. And Lord, we recognize that in accordance with Acts 2, these dreams and these visions, when you reveal yourself in a special way, Lord, we anticipate that you will do this. But Lord, we want to be diligent and we want to be discerning. So Father, help us to know what is a truth from lie. Help us to know what is divine from the enemy. Help us to know, Lord, the difference between a dream and a vision that is good and true and pure and one that, that, that really just has no meaning. Father, help us to listen to Your voice. Do not, Father... God, help us all not to limit You. Not to limit what You can do. We cannot wait for the last days when You pour out Your Spirit on all flesh and young men have visions and old men dream dreams and people prophesy the wondrous works of God. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.